0: I have a, uh, a good friend who uh, is the kind of person who constantly gets himself into hot water simply by uh, being a Christian. He just uh, seems to live a normal Christian life. But wherever he goes, he rubs some people the wrong way and stirs other people up and creates problems for himself. And a friend of mine described him as a man... Uh, who was um, uh, constantly uh, courageous, continually cheerful, and always in trouble? And uh, it struck me when I heard that 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 really is a description, a good description of the Apostle Paul. Wherever he went, he seemed to create problems for himself. And uh, the passage we want to look at this morning is a is a good description of the reaction of people to the apostle's ministry. It's in Acts nineteen. We'll begin reading with verse 21, Acts 19:21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent it to Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Aristarchus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Uh, the things which uh, Luke refers to here as being finished are the things described in the first 19 chapters of, uh, of chapter 19. It's the story of Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus, the two and a half years in which he taught in the hall of, of Tyrannus. Uh, Luke, just uh, by the nature of his historical method, tends to pass over a lot of facts, and he doesn't really tell us everything that happened to Paul while he's there, uh, completely bypasses the fact that Paul had a great deal of uh, trouble. Uh, he describes uh, uh, some of some of the things that happened to him in the books of First and Second Corinthians and in Acts 20, when he meets with the elders in Ephesus. He refers to the plots of the Jews against him that caused him a great uh, number of trials. Um, things were tough for Paul in the city of Ephesus. It's possible that he was imprisoned there, that uh, he was under a sentence of death. He refers to that in 2 Corinthians 1, that the, that the death sentence was passed on him. But God, who raises the dead, delivered him in some miraculous way. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. No one knows exactly what he meant. It's, it's barely possible that he went into the arena and, and faced uh, the gladiators or wild beasts there. In the amphitheater, it's unlikely, since he was a Roman citizen, but it's possible. Luke passes over all of that, but it was a very difficult time for the Apostle Paul. Um, Luke tells us that after these things had finished, Paul then purposed to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. And it's not that he was trying to evade his responsibility there or avoid the the hard times. It's simply that he had another purpose entirely. He wanted to go to Jerusalem in order to deliver a gift to the uh, poverty-stricken saints there. And he sent his two friends, Timothy and and Erastus, uh, into Macedonia to make that collection. And then he wanted to carry that with him when he went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which was uh, coming up. And then he says his purpose is to see Rome. Now, from this point on in the book of Luke, Uh, book of Acts, Luke is concerned about uh, Paul's uh, journey westward on to Rome. Uh, Everything leads up to that event. It was Paul's desire to go where the gospel had not been proclaimed. By this time, there were churches uh, planted in all of Asia Minor and throughout Greece and Macedonia and North Africa, and and Paul wanted to go west and ultimately on to Spain. And it appears that his purpose in going to Rome was to gather support there so that he could journey on Uh, To the west. And so, having sent uh, on into Macedonia his two friends, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. But uh, things changed, and uh, he had to change his mind. In verse 23 about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. There was a disturbance, Luke says, concerning the way. This is the term that Christians used for themselves. They never referred to themselves as Christians in these days. That was the word that non-Christians used for believers. They described themselves as followers of the way. And uh, something happened, a disturbance was created concerning uh, the church by a man named Demetrius, who was described here as a silversmith. Um, Most of the worship in Ephesus was centered around Artemis, as she's called here by the Greeks, or Diana, as she was known by the Romans. She was uh, sort of an earth mother. She represented Mother Nature. She was the mother of gods and and men, and wherever she's depicted on coins or monuments, she's a rather matronly looking uh, woman who stood for motherhood in the world. And she was housed in Ephesus in an enormous temple. Uh, It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In beauty, it rivaled the, the Parthenon, but it was about four times larger. In, in actual surface area, it would be larger than, uh, than Bronco Stadium. It was an enormous structure. And as I said, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people would come from all over the Roman Empire, tourists and pilgrims, to uh, view this magnificent structure. And Demetrius and the silversmiths who were there were involved in making a, a form of Ephesian kitsch, uh, little trinkets, souvenirs, or tourists who happened to visit the, uh, the temple. Models, silver models of this temple. And inside these models, little terracotta figurines that represented uh, Diana. They've actually found some of, these, uh, uh, some of these models and they know what they look like. And the problem was that the preaching of Paul in the hall of, of Tyrannus and the response of Christians to that teaching and their godly behavior and their proclamation of the gospel in Ephesus was uh, causing the business of these silversmiths to decline. People were not buying their junk. That's what it amounted to. They simply refused to uh, purchase these these little models, and uh, it was hurting them financially. Uh, the hip pocket is the most sensitive portion of the human anatomy, and... Uh, <laughs> When you pinch that portion, uh, when you pinch a man's pocketbook, he begins to squeal. They saw red ink is what happened, and uh, they, they wanted to do something about it. So Demetrius called together all of the other silversmiths. Apparently there was a guild of smiths, and he was the head of this guild. And he announced to them that the apostle Paul was hurting their business. But when he makes his broader appeal to the, the populace of Ephesus, you'll notice he doesn't refer to that, uh, that motive. Because it's always inappropriate to appeal to selfish motives, even even non Christians realize that sort of thing. And so when he makes his appeal, he says it's Diana that's at stake; it's freedom of religion, and that's the appeal that he makes to the people of of Ephesus. I couldn't help but think of Norman Lear and some of his efforts to uh, to uh, uh, overcome control of the some of the soft. that he purveys on television. And his appeal is always to freedom of speech. It's a constitutional issue. It's an American right. You see, it goes along with uh, motherhood and apple pie and Chevrolet and all the good things that made America great. And that's the sort of appeal that that this uh, silversmith makes. His motive was purely selfish and self-centered. He cared nothing for the people of Ephesus. He really cared nothing for the worship of Diana. But uh, he... Uh, he justifies his actions on the basis of some higher, more noble a no- motive. It's freedom of religion, he says. That's at stake. And he stirred the people up, and a riot ensued. And uh, that is described for us by Luke in the verses that follow, verse 28. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord accord into the theater. The uh, theater in Ephesus has been restored. It's one of the best-preserved amphitheaters in the ancient world. It's quite a large structure, seats about 25,000 people. And the city poured into this this, uh, theater and filled it, dragging along with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. They couldn't find Paul, so they swept up his two friends, and took them into the theater with them. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Was quite a courageous thing for Paul to do. He apparently wanted to go into the theater and rescue his two friends. And the Christians in Ephesus prohibited him. And even the Asiarchs, who were not Christians at all, they were the landed uh, gentry, the nobility, of the city of Ephesus, and probably most of them uh, non-Christians. Uh, but they were his friends. He had won their friendship in some way, and they tried to prevent him from going into the, into the uh, theater. And in verse 32, Luke tells us that some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. When I read that, it reminded me of some congregational meetings I've attended, (coughs) and some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had literally pushed him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. Apparently, the Jews wanted to disassociate themselves from from the Christians, and so they pushed forward Alexander to make a defense on behalf of the Jews in the city but uh, when they recognized that he was a Jew a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours great is Artemis of the Ephesians this mob was in a ugly mood in a mindless mood really shouting their slogans and really beyond uh, totally beyond reason riots are, are frightening things I, I don't know if you've ever been in uh, in this sort of uh, circumstance when I was working with students in the 60s, this sort of thing occurred uh, quite frequently on the campuses in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, I've seen uh, students burn buildings down and trash buildings and and beat people up, and it's just frightening to see. Uh, people are capable of things in mass that they would never ever do as individuals. They justify it as mob violence, but really, I, I think all a mob does is bring out the real evil in their hearts. We'll do things in mass because there's, there's anonymity about it, but really the evil is there. It's just incredible uh, the sort of effect that a mob like this uh, can have. It was a frightening circumstance for the Christians in, in Ephesus. But uh, after a time, the, uh, they shouted themselves hoarse. And quieted down. And in verse thirty-five, we're told that a a minor public official of some sort, a a town clerk, as he's described, said, "Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are inalienable, inalienable facts, undeniable facts. It is early in the morning. You ought to keep calm and." And do nothing rash. Uh, His point is a good one. If Artemis is so magnificent, let her defend herself. And then he goes on to appeal to uh, an even more uh, reasonable motive. He says, You have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session... And the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Rome ruled an iron hand the peace of Rome the Pax Romani as it was called was was enforced ruthlessly and uh, what this town clerk said made a lot of sense if if we're guilty of civil disobedience the Romans will enact martial law and they'll shut us down somewhat like the situation in Poland and that's exactly what would have happened and the people knew it and so uh, the assembly then left the uh, theater and the church was able to go on and, uh, and function in that city. Uh, there's an interesting historical note here. In verse 38, he says that the proconsuls are available if you have a charge against these men. Normally there would be only one proconsul in any region. But uh, it's a simple fact, and we know this from the writings of historians during this period, that there was actually no proconsul in Asia at this particular time. Uh, Nero's mother, Agrippina, had poisoned the proconsul that was there, and uh, they had to appeal to the other proconsuls who were in, uh, in surrounding areas. And the fact that Luke uses a plural here indicates how accurate he is in his history, because there was a little time window of about two or three years, from 45 A.D. to 46 A.D., when they had no proconsul in that region. And that's when Paul was in Ephesus, and Luke accurately records the fact that that's what happened. Uh, A man by the name of William Ramsey, who was an unbelieving historian, actually became a Christian as a result of reading the book of Acts and becoming convinced of the extreme accuracy with which Luke reports this history. Now, that's a side reference that's apropos of nothing, but it's just just an indication of how accurate uh, our writer is. Now, uh, the chapter division is in the wrong place. Unfortunately, verse 1 of chapter 20 belongs with this uh, story. We're told that after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. I would love to have been a little mouse in the corner when Paul exhorted the church after that uh, riot. I'm sure what he said is to go right on uh, living out the life of God in in this city and proclaiming boldly the the gospel and counting upon the indwelling resources of Christ and remembering that he's the one who has overcome the world. And we know this church did just that. The gospel spread from Ephesus throughout this entire area of Asia Minor to Laodicea and Colossae and and Philippi and Sardis and Thyatira and all the churches that are mentioned in, in the book of Revelation. Uh, this church had an enormous impact upon Asia after after Paul left. Now, there are a couple of observations I'd like to make about this uh, passage. The first is that I want you to see the relationship between human government and the propagation of the gospel. I, I think many of us uh, tend to be highly suspicious of man's government. We have a bias against it. We can't see how anything good can come out of human activity. But what we have to realize is that, that human government exists because of God's authority. It is there because God has planned it. And to rebel against human authority is to rebel against God, ultimately. We are a fallen race, and without government to maintain law and order and justice, we would tear ourselves apart. We would literally destroy ourselves. You can see from reading the story the effect that, the Roman, that Roman rule had upon this unruly crowd. It quieted things down so the gospel could be proclaimed. That's the purpose of human authority. It's derived from God. If we rebel against it, rebel against the principle of authority, we're rebelling against God. Now, there may be times that we have to respectfully disobey the government because they ask us to do things that are contrary to Scripture. But we should never assault or attack the principle of government because it's instituted by God. In the play A Man for All Seasons, Sir Thomas More is uh, carrying on a debate with his son about right and and wrong. And his son makes the comment that uh, he would, in the pursuit of the devil, chop down every law. And Moore says, when you have cut down every law and the last law falls and the devil turns upon you, what will you do then? How can you stand in the winds that will blow then? And he's right. Human government exists to protect us and to provide an environment in which the gospel can be preached. It's one of its major purposes. Now I want you to look at another passage. Let me refer you to 1 Timothy 2. This is Paul writing. 1 Timothy 2 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. We have to pray for all men, and specifically for kings. And all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony to be born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Paul says we ought to pray that we will have freedom, that liberty will prevail, that government will operate righteously, and and men in positions of leadership will be righteous and just. But freedom is not an end in itself. Freedom is the means to the end of preaching the gospel. You see how Paul is arguing? Pray for peace because God wants all men to be saved. That's the ultimate goal. It's not peace or liberty for the sake of peace and liberty. And those of us that tend to be somewhat conservative in our political beliefs need to keep that in mind. Because I think our tendency is to be very short-range and short-term in our goals. We want liberty for the sake of liberty and peace for the sake of peace. Or we want peace so we can have the freedom to become more affluent To gain more power, to buy more lands, to have more possessions, or to just live untrammeled, unruffled lives. We're very short-term in our thinking. The scriptures are very clear. The reason we pray for peace, the reason we work for liberty, is so the gospel can be proclaimed. That's the ultimate purpose for which all other purposes exist. As the prophets put it in the Old Testament, so that that God would be known from sea to sea. That's the purpose. And all other purposes are subservient to that one ultimate purpose. I've been reading a little book by R. C. Sproul this past week, and he was talking about uh, the philosophy of pragmatism that most most Christians have, which is just uh, to be concerned with short-term goals and what what works best in the immediate, rather than in the ultimate. And he told a story about uh, going to a, his, his uh, daughter's kindergarten class. And the teacher was explaining what they did in this class. It's a very progressive uh, school. And she was explaining that from 9 o'clock to 9.17, they worked with, with certain kinds of blocks in order to develop manual dexterity. And then from 9.17 to 9.25, they listened to music because they wanted to develop the ears of these children and their appreciation of of good music and so forth. And she went through the whole day explaining all the, the goals for each unit of time. And when she was through, Sproul raised his hand and he said, May I ask a question? She said, Certainly. She said what? He said, what is the goal of it all? You've told us what the goal is for every unit of time, but what is the purpose, the ultimate purpose for these children being in your class? And she just totally blanked out. She never thought it out. And his point was, what kind of children do you want these children to be? When they have gone through a day's uh, worth of study, how will it change them? What sort of character will they have? What are they to be ultimately? And in the pursuit of these short-term goals, she had never thought of the overall ultimate goal. That's the way we have to look at life. What is everything for? Why do we have liberty and freedom? Why do we have the opportunities that we have in in the United States so we can grow wealthy, So we can live out untroubled lives? Absolutely not. That's simply the means by which the gospel has the freedom to be preached. So let's proclaim it. Government, you see, has that role. It maintains law, order, and justice so the gospel can be proclaimed. Now, the second thing I would like to say is that that when you begin to proclaim the gospel, you will, uh, there will be a reaction. It's inevitable. If there's no reaction, we ought to be concerned. There ought to be evil, either a revival or a riot whenever we begin to live out the life of God. If people can simply take us for granted, then we're not living a normal Christian life. Something is, something is wrong. Now, there are two things we need to do. The first is that we need to live it out in our character. Jesus said we are both salt and light. And it doesn't take a great deal of salt and light to affect a a larger uh, uh, sphere. Uh, A little bit of salt permeates a large mass. A little bit of light can enlighten a, a large room, illuminate a large room doesn't take much. We're we're inclined to think that there's both safety and strength only in numbers, but that's not so. Conversely, we're also inclined to be intimidated uh, when we are the only person in our sphere of influence who's living out the life of God. That's not so. A little bit of salt can have a, a great effect upon a large number of people. Paul was teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus four or five hours a day. That's really all he was doing. As far as we know, he didn't even leave the city of Ephesus. He never went to any of these other cities like Colossae. He says so. And yet the effect of one man's life was being felt throughout that whole region. People were coming to Christ as a result of this man. People were reacting to him. And One of the ways we make an impact is simply by living in front of people, letting our light shine, as Jesus said. Being ethical in our business practices. there's We disqualify ourselves if we're unscrupulous in our business. If our attitude is uh, win at all costs or make gain at all costs. Or if we're not serving our employers well. If we're not giving them an honest day's work. Giving them the very best of our time and energy and thought. Or if our attitudes are wrong, or if we're not working hard at our marriages, and if we're not living out that life in our homes as well as as in the world, nothing is more devastating than duplicity in in our Christian lives. Our authority, basically, is our obedience. Now, it doesn't mean that we always perform perfectly. We don't. But it's the attitude and intent of our heart. Are we seeking, searching after, hungering after righteousness? I was skiing with Josh over the Christmas holidays. And when I say I ski with Josh, I I say that advisedly. I I usually ride up the chairlift once, and then I don't see him till the end of the day. (coughs) I have more respect for this 50-year-old body than he does. And uh, so I usually end up riding the chairlifts all by myself. And actually, I I sort of enjoy that. Uh, You meet a lot of interesting people and uh, you have a captive audience for ten minutes <laughs> and uh, it beats ter- staring at the tip of your skis all the way up so I, you know, I just start to chatter when people get in the, in the lift with me and I ask them you know, how, how you doing, where you been skiing where do you live, what do you do, what's your name and, and uh, usually all sorts of interesting things turn up I find it's one of the greatest places in the world to share the gospel uh, people generally are are uh, interested in talking. Uh, This last week, or week before last, I uh, sat down next to a gentleman about my age, and uh, as we were going up the lift, I asked him what he did. He told me he worked for a a large company here in the city, and, and I asked him how he liked working for that outfit, and he began to tell me about his troubles. He said he'd just never been satisfied with any job he ever had. And as he talked, what struck me is that he was the most profane individual I'd ever heard in my life. Every other word was a swear word. And he didn't even use them appropriately. You know, it was just sort of <laughs> swearing for the sake of uh, swearing. And as we made our way up, I, I said, well, uh, I, said, I, I guess you know why. Your vocation doesn't satisfy you? And he said, No, why? So I told him about Genesis 3 and the results of the fall and the fact that uh, the ground grew thorns and thistles. And none of us, not any of us, were really satisfied with our vocations. We always wanted something more. The more you get, the more you want. And he said, Well, that makes a lot of sense. He said, That probably explains why I've never really been satisfied. And I said, Well, for myself, I've discovered that really only God satisfies anyway. Nothing else does. And he looked at me and he said, Are you a Christian? And I said, Yeah. He said, A born again Christian? And I said, Yes. And he said, So am I. (laughs) About that time we got to the ramp and I didn't get to. Say what was really on my mind, but but what I wanted to say is, please don't tell anybody. (laughs) It's really funny. All through the rest of the day, whenever he'd see me, he'd say, Hi, David." Now that's what that's what I'm saying. Don't do that. Don't do that way. Let's be real and authentic and genuine. Let the life of of the indwelling Christ dwell in you and live out His life wherever you go. And then, secondly tell people. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that Demetrius' comment is that Paul was saying something. Paul wasn't really living it. He was saying that gods that uh, that are made by human hands are not gods at all. And that's what we need to be telling people. That's what they need to hear. Uh, the problem is that uh, man-made gods bring pleasure, but they bring no joy there is a difference, you know. There's a vast difference. One endures and one does not. Pleasure doesn't endure. Joy does. The reason uh, sin is so tempting and other man-made gods, uh, clothes and cars and houses and, and those sorts of things, the reason they're so tempting is because they are so pleasurable. But the pleasure doesn't last, doesn't endure. What people are looking for really is joy, and it's such a delight to be able to tell them that they're worshiping the wrong things, to do so graciously and, and kindly, but with real authority to say that the things that you're pursuing will never satisfy you, but but God will. That's our message. That's what we need to be telling people, not merely living it, but telling it, saying it. Let me leave you with one final passage, 2 Corinthians 10. Paul wrote Second Corinthians shortly after leaving Ephesus, as he traveled up through Macedonia, on his way down to Corinth. It must have been a matter of days or, or weeks after he was forced out of the city. And he says, "I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. That's said tongue in cheek because that was a charge that they had." had made regarding his own behavior. I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh, that is, we depended upon ourselves. For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we're human, we walk around in a human body, we do not war according to the flesh, we don't trust our humanity, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty through God, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, again, it's not immediately apparent what Paul is saying, but if you think about it for a minute, he's drawing a, an analogy between a fortified city And a human life. He's saying we're like we're like a walled city, and everyone would know in those days what a walled city was like. There was an outer defense system which was a wall. That was the first line of defense. And then within that wall there was a citadel, usually a blockhouse, an impregnable blockhouse, into which people would run if the walls were were breached. And Paul says the, the human personality is like that. He says, out in front of the walls that we erect to keep people away from us and to keep truth at bay and to keep our minds independently. And, and, and they're the the prejudices and the traditions that we cling to and our pride. They're like walls, he says. And uh, within that is the citadel, which is the human mind with all of our thoughts. And Paul says we have to breach those walls. We have to run our uh, war machines up to the walls and batter them down and we break into the city and then we have to batter our way into the into the blockhouse and we take them captive take their thoughts captive it's a very helpful uh, analogy well how do we do that well Paul tells us in this passage it says in verse 1 I Paul myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ and then in verse 3 he says though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh three things he says first we just urge people we don't bully them we don't intimidate them. We don't, we're not brash and crude. We don't crash in where we're not wanted. We're not intrusive. We just quietly go about urging people to put aside the gods that are man-made and don't satisfy and give their allegiance to Jesus Christ, make Him Lord. And secondly, he says we do that with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ in a non-defensive way. It doesn't matter if people attack us. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't even have to defend the gospel. We just proclaim it and do so gently and meekly and count on God to produce results. And if we live like that in this city, in your neighborhood, your classroom, your office, your shop, your ranching community, whatever, and you'll create an effect, people won't take you for granted. You may create a riot because those walls, uh, people get very defensive, but there'll be some who will respond. And you'll have the joy of seeing God use you to change the lives of men and women. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this helpful word, from your word, that delivers us from impatience, our feelings of frustration and impotence, that enable us to see that we can have effect an effect upon the world, that you can use us to bring about lasting results. We get so frustrated by the, the efforts of uh, in the flesh to try to change things, to change people. And we know it doesn't work. Help us to believe that, Lord, and and to follow out your plan. to, To trust you for results. To live out your life in this world. And urge people to be reconciled to you. Make us agents of reconciliation. Today, this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.